0: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like," a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode. As always, I am joined by my friends, Brian. Hey, Brian. It's from Katie Presents. Danielle.
0: Hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean, Virginia. Josh. Josh from
1: Marion, Illinois. Marion Cultural and Civic Center. And Katie.
2: Hi there. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts.
1: And I'm Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. So friends, this week, I had a great opportunity to sit down with Sarah Rogers while I was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I wanted to ask you all, um, what is a big risk that you took professionally that you were nervous about that ended up paying off?
2: Kevin, that's a great question. I am thinking of back when I was in the early days of my career, I think I was still in college applying for programs coming out of undergrad. I applied for some sort of like fellowship internship program at a really prestigious theater company out of Chicago. And the application was one of these that like they ask you the same question four times in a row and you have to figure out how to answer it in four different ways. Didn't get an interview for the fellowship, but I really wanted a shot at it. So I just took a risk and I wrote them an email, like a long email explaining like, I don't think I did really great in this application. This is why I think I'm a good fit for the program. I, you know, I'm looking at this sort of opportunity instead of going to graduate school, et cetera, et cetera. They were so impressed by the fact that I like took the extra time to write this letter to them and like follow up and whatever. They gave me an interview. Interview was terrible. I did terrible. That's okay. (laughs) But I think the lesson was like Putting yourself out there sometimes actually does result in like taking that next step forward. And it was a really valuable lesson.
0: That's great. I think deciding to leave a job and like switch paths makes me nervous. I think it makes a lot of other people nervous as well. And I really felt that way whenever I left um, my position at the Wolf Trap Foundation, because I absolutely adored the organization and I really loved the work but I knew I wanted to be in presenting and I was having a hard time and I was maybe going to try and go about it in a little bit of a roundabout way because I just didn't see any other kind of path forward. And that just felt like the biggest risk at the time. And it was so scary because it's like, you can't like undo it, right? You don't get like <laughs> a trial period for your new job and then you just go back. But I think it paid up because I'm very happy as a presenter.
3: For me, there's a couple of examples over the past couple of years, but Whenever ECE Touring picked up Hip Play Ballerinas, I heard the concept and I said, let's get it on the books and made an offer before I ever saw them showcase, before they ever went on tour, just because I believed that it would be something very cool just from the concept. And then pandemic happened instead of the show happening, but it remained on sale for two years while we were closed. And coming out of the pandemic, all of a sudden it was sold out. And we had this amazing sellout show, and it was off of this random risk. And the other part was that like, by the time it happened, we had planned on losing money on that show. Obviously, with the sellout, we didn't. And with what we had booked it on, we had booked far under what they were now getting for their tour dates. And so we revised contract in the end to, to so it would benefit everyone, and, and so they would feel like they weren't being taken advantage of by them still doing the show, even though they were booked at a lower fee originally. Uh, and so it, it was a win-win for everybody involved and such a great thing for the community. And I, I couldn't have been happier with it.
4: So when I was at the Rialto, we had traditionally done a summer kind of program for like high school students in the area that were interested in musical theater. And we'd worked with this group that toured around and, and put up a musical, but I had questioned people about this because I'd never heard of this group and I looked into them and they didn't really have any Broadway credits, but they were promoting like a Broadway experience. And then when I started talking to some of the parents in the community, I found out that, that a lot of the kids, like depending on what you're cast, like if you were cast in a chorus part and the chorus wasn't in the show a lot, they still had to be there the whole time during the two weeks and pay the same amount, but they would just be sitting the whole time and not learning anything. I'm like, there's gotta be a better way. So It was actually around January, and while I was at APAP, I reached out to my friend Eric Scotto, who was performing in Something Rotten at the time. You know, it was a Saturday, it was a two-show day, and he agreed to meet me at a local bar right, right down the road from the St. James where he was performing. And I talked with him to see if there was any way that he can help me figure out because I had this idea of a Broadway boot camp where I could actually use real Broadway performers, pay them to come out and work with the kids. But that way, nobody's just sitting around like everyone gets an experience, so on and so forth. My goal, (laughs) selfishly, is I was trying to get him and his husband, they're a power Broadway couple, um, David Eggers. And I'll I'll shout out David. He has a wonderful Broadway podcast called The Mental Game of Musical Theater. Really awesome. Check that out. But anyway, my goal was to get them to come and be like my idea was to have a, a lead teacher or teachers for the two weeks. so there's consistency with the students but then have a rotating door where um, several Broadway stars would come in and out like they'd be there for maybe two days and then it'd be a whole new group of them. And that's ended ended up what we did. I won't go through all the steps of what they did, but it was an amazing experience. All the visiting artists that came through thought it was amazing. They they were like, this is an incredible model. In addition to that, I wanted to make it more accessible too and not just be like the rich kids in the community because it was going to be more expensive. And we had gotten this really great money from a, tr- a charitable trust in, to help offset everything. And we had gotten so much money. Not only could we pay all these performers and pay for their travel and you know all their expenses and so forth, but we also were able to have um, 20 different scholarships Scholarships. There were ten of them that were full scholarships, and then there were partial scholarships, all on a need base, um, you know, format. So I was really proud of that, and it it worked really well. That's very cool, Brian. I would awesome. Love that. Yeah, I would love to steal that.
1: You know, when when I was at the Orpheum Theater, we didn't really have a great sound system, and we had to go through like a pretty big renovation and stuff. And so I, being the Twenty-something cocky kid that I was, uh, was like, "Oh yeah, we're definitely gonna be able to fundraise for this system and and put this in." So I booked a show um, that basically relied on us having to have those upgrades. Then started doing the fundraising. Obviously, like booked it out far enough. I will say, like, one, it worked out. But the bigger thing on that was it it relied on us putting this giant array in the in the space, um, which for an old. Historic theater was something that was very new. Um, it was right over the proscenium. It made the sound in the space almost perfect. Um, but when it first went in, my fear was that I had just ruined the theater. Um, and I had people that were like there when they were coming in while they were installing this thing that basically shared the same sentiment. were are like, oh. uh, this oh, is no. awful. <laughs> um, and then once that show that I booked came in, um, nobody noticed literally the only people who, saw, who noticed it was like the people who saw it while the construction was going on. Um, after that, like nobody made a comment on it.
4: They must've noticed the improvement in quality of sound.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. They, they loved the sound system. They thought it was really great, but like nobody was like, Oh, why would you put this giant speaker in the, in the center of this? Uh, but that was my fear. I was like that. I'm mm-hmm. the guy who ruined the Orpheum theater. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, thanks friends. And now please enjoy my interview with Sarah Rogers.
5: I'm Sarah Rogers. I'm a producer and agent uh, based in Montreal, Canada.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and taking some time out of your busy schedule. You know, before we start on what you're working on now, I want to talk about how you got started in the arts. So maybe dive into where your passion started in the arts. Like, where did that begin for you?
5: Mm-hmm. I mean, I was really lucky. My parents encouraged me to see a lot of theater growing up. We would we would do that together. And, you know, seeing live performance, I was just like, that. that's what I want to do. So not knowing that there was a whole world of work that goes into productions, you immediately think I want to be on stage. Yes. Tried that. It was a bad idea. But I found through going to theater school that the organization of it all, the making it happen, that's what I was really passionate about. And that's what I was actually good at. So so I followed that path. And in my second year of university, again, stroke of luck, uh, an agent who was based in Toronto at the time where I grew up, he represented a whole world of, of artists like Robert Lepage, uh, Crystal Pite, mm. um, and uh, Dana Gengra who I now work with uh, as an agent and producer. So I worked with him for almost 15 years, started out, you know, doing a lot of administrative tasks and then quite quickly got into tour management. So I was on the road with the companies seeing the work live, being at big prestigious festivals and seeing a lot of other work too. So that informed me quite early on in terms of what was possible and the sort of level of work that I was curious about and that I was passionate about. Quickly with the tour management I also started taking on development tasks just Mm -hmm. because I was on site with one company at you know the Melbourne Festival and then could speak to the artistic director about you know something else that we were working on for the following year so we would find ourselves returning over and over again quite often to different festivals with our roster of artists which when I started working (laughs) them six artists and when I stopped we had 26 oh wow. So I was really ready to pare down and focus in on a project, an artist, and Dana and I had worked quite intensely on remounting a piece of hers. She founded a dance company in Vancouver called The Holy Body Tattoo, together with another choreographer. They were really a groundbreaking company in Canada in terms of the level of physicality that they were playing with, but also commissioned music and including sort of a multimedia element Mm. to their work. So they toured quite a lot, and actually the first trip that I did when I started working with. This agent was to see Dana perform in Brooklyn, part of Celebrate Brooklyn in Prospect Park in 2001. We'll date this now. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I'd never seen anything like it before. That really shifted my thinking in terms of, oh, theater is what I am passionate about. That's what I want to do. I still am. But dance just opened up this whole other world for me in terms of focusing in on how you feel when you see a performance Mm. rather than what it means. That was really liberating, quite frankly. Dana and I, in 2015, started working on remounting a large-scale work of hers that she made with the holy body tattoo that was called Monumental. And that was originally all performed nationally in Canada. And we did one show, two performances in L.A. as well um, in 2005. But when we remounted it, the piece had all been made on music by Godspeed You, Black Emperor from Montreal, kind of legendary band. (laughs) They had been on hiatus and luckily they were reforming around that time. So after about three years of coaxing them along, we were able to convince them to come on the road with a contemporary dance company. And we toured the work live with them. So that took years off my life and (laughs) i'm really proud of what we accomplished but i was i was very happy to to kind of move on from that project and start working on some new stuff with dana so we've since premiered two large-scale works frontera in 2019 and creation destruction uh, last year in 2021 and both are large-scale 10 11 dancers and both with commissioned live music, uh, Frontera with Fly Pan Am, and uh, Creation Destruction with some core members of Godspeed You Black Emperor, that we've worked to extend the score for local musicians to participate. So it's one of the exciting things about the work is that it's a big work, but we want to include a lot of local artists in it as well. So we're able to include strings and vocals, and also a guest artist in that production.
1: Wow, wow, that's a lot. I want to go back a little bit. You mm-hmm. said that you were lucky enough to have parents that engaged you into theater. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Was there a performance or a piece that you it was like a pivotal moment for you where you were like, "This, like, I, I love this." That like I you mean, always think back. To.
5: I, I can't say it was this specific show. We watched Annie a lot. I don't mm. know if I ever saw it live <laughs> on stage, but that was definitely a fun. And it's so funny because I'm so not into musicals now. But that sort of excitement and scale, I guess, mm-hmm. was was something that excited me and. I think the idea that you could have a job that involved all of that, that could be fun that way was, was really exciting to me.
1: Yeah. And so you said you went to theater school. Mm -hmm. Was that to to be an actor? Was that...
5: You know, I didn't really know at the time. Like I said, I wasn't aware of all the other worlds. Like I understood that there needed to be a lighting designer involved and a director. And I did direct a few plays in uni, but um, it was really the producing side of it that that got me excited and um, and that I started to see a creative element in that, too. And I think that's something that I, I like engaging with now is because I do see a lot of work. I'm engaged in a lot of conversations with the artists that I work with about about their their direction and, you know things that they should think about seeing and you know what my impression is when i mm-hmm. see something and i feel like my opinion's pretty valued by them. So.
1: Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you got connected with an agent. Was that through school? Mm-hmm. Or? Okay.
5: Yeah, we were lucky. I mean, lucky unlucky, but I guess this would have been in 2000. There was a strike at the university that I went to. Mm-hmm. TAs went on strike, and so we lost a few months of production course. Um, but we we maintained rehearsals and kind of kept the project alive. And to reward us in a sense for that work. Our professor, Robert Wallace, connected with um, a theatre festival that was happening in Toronto at the time called Six Stages that this agent was a part of. And so we were, you know, all paired up with with somebody involved in the festival. Mm -hmm. And they had artists from Australia, from Belgium, from the UK. But when everybody in the class looked at that list, you know, it's very... It's all well and good to know somebody in Australia, but everybody wanted a local contact to be able to kind of pursue. So there was a bit of a waiting list for, you know, the, the agents and the and the local people involved in the, the festival. So we actually drew names from a hat and I, oh, wow. I got the person I wanted. So... <laughs> Quite quickly, he let me know about a grant that was available to to do a mentorship, and the mentorship had to involve travel. So I got the grant, and a few weeks later, we were in New York, and then we wow. went to San Francisco. And so I was able to, yeah, to see the companies live that he represented in really important contexts, and that really that really changed everything for me. But this was in 2001, so my first trip to, to New York was in July 2001, and we went back in September, you oh, know, wow. right after 9-11, yeah. because there was a, a big Quebec uh, festival going on in New York at the time we had a lot of artists some of which were in between the Twin Towers setting Mm -hmm. up for a big uh, big opening night event so to be there a week after everything happened um, the world changed uh, was made a big impression on me and to have those two trips so close together yeah to see the difference in the city uh,
1: market. Yeah, I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. like that. Wow. What a tremendous opportunity to work with that agent and to work with artists that are on an international level. Yeah. This is me just speaking from like personal experience. I mean, it, it, it had taken me a while to, to really realize like just how vast our industry is on that international level because I was so used to working sort of like locally and regionally mm-hmm. um, up until a point. And so what a great opportunity to have that sort of early on.
5: For sure. No, it was uh, it was really special. And, you know, I was given a lot of opportunity, but it was very much like sink or swim. So yeah. th- you didn't have a choice. Um, yeah. And a lot of it, when I look back at it, I was like, how... Oh. <laughs> How
1: did I do that? I always say that's one of the most amazing things to me because I I look back at like early on in in my career and I think a lot of my colleagues do too. And they're like, how did we think we could do this job? Like Mm -hmm. what? Like
5: like if I'd known, (laughs) would I have? Mm. Yes.
1: Yes. So right now you, you are an agent and and producer. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about what, what that means and, and what that role is like for you? Yep.
5: So I work with sort of a handful of Canadian artists uh, representing their work and trying to get them, you know, uh, opportunities within Canada and abroad. On a producing level, that's where I can really dig deep with uh, an artist, and that's what I'm doing with with Dana Gingras and her company Animals of Distinction. That company was founded in 2006 as sort of a satellite company based in Montreal that was her own sort of project outside of the holy body Mm -hmm. tattoo and for her to sort of foster new work that she wanted to focus on it gave us an umbrella under which we could produce the remount of monumental and that's really sort of formed a lot of the work that we're making now what i love about dana is she's i mean she's one of the hardest working people that i know but she's she's really a creative brain. She's mm-hmm. really driven by um, arts that excite her. Music is also kind of fundamental to how she makes work. And I, I think that was also thinking back to formative things that would have made me say, this is what I want to do. It's actually the music part of it, like going to live concerts. Uh, I remember going to see the Rolling Stones when I was 12 wow. with my parents. And I was like, this is cool you know this is something that is unforgettable everybody's having such a good time and you're on this natural high though there was a lot of pot smoking going on but I was quite young so I didn't know what, was, what that was about but it actually might have been the music angle that made me go oh this live thing this is something and theater might have just been more accessible actually yeah. in a way um, I wasn't going to be a rock star that's fine <laughs> but making those events happen and certainly like now part of what makes me really excited about Dana's work is this commissioning of of music and then including those musicians when we tour and you can just see the level of performance and the dancers just it goes up a notch with that live component and certainly the audience audience's experience is is heightened as well but it also for me like it really offers another avenue for audiences to approach the work Mm -hmm. so you know what we don't want to do is just be touring around to dance festivals and you know preaching to the choir what dana does is something else so to be able to look into an audience and go, oh, this is a music crowd and a dance crowd and, an, and a visual arts crowd, and they're all here enjoying this production together, and they're finding their way in through the discipline that they're comfortable with mm-hmm. or that they have more knowledge about. And we really see that within the audience. You know, we'll have musicians come out afterwards and say, I didn't know I liked contemporary dance. And it's like, you know... <laughs> thank you for coming and try another one you know yeah. we're not so scary so so that for me is the kind of driving force of, of what i'm doing right now for sure
1: that leads me into one of my biggest questions that i've always had about dance is how <laughs> what is
5: just how yeah, <laughs> yeah. how
1: I, <laughs> yeah I, how do you find yourself talking about dance to people who don't dance or don't know much about dance? Because I will say that I am not a dancer. And I think over the past few years, I have really gotten an appreciation for dance, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. All I know is that sometimes when I see a piece, like I I just feel something in my core. Mm -hmm. I just, I feel that and I don't know how to express that or explain that to somebody who has never seen a piece like that. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious, like as you know, Either as as an audience member or as an agent you know that's selling this experience, selling mm-hmm. this piece, like or even the venue. like how, how do you go about talking about that?
5: Mm-hmm. No, I think for a lot of people it can be really daunting because theater and often music, there's language involved, so there's an understanding. There's there's um, a really practical, tangible something you can work with. Whereas with dance, you know, like I said earlier, it's very much about how do you feel, and if mm-hmm. you find content within that, awesome. But um, the idea that there's no wrong answer. On, on how you feel, you know? Yeah. It's how you feel. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really basic, you know. I remember also going with my parents to see a contemporary dance show, and my dad was pissed. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> like, oh, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't, I feel really alienated. <laughs> Um, you know, he was an English teacher. So for him, you know, not having language as a base was very challenging. Um, but for me it was really liberating, um, because it really, it it meant that I could just experience and, and worry about the rest afterwards. Dana does is really not, you know, it's not dancey dance. It's very, it can be very pedestrian creation destruction, our latest, her latest production, the dancers are, are just walking in circles for the first 20 minutes of the show. And that doesn't matter because there is so much else going on Mm -hmm. that the audience almost needs that time to get comfortable with what's about to happen. And when we performed it in Montreal at the FTA Festival in May, you know, uh, they were expecting about three or 400 people a night and we had well over 1,500 every night. And these were families. These were people, you know, who were just riding by on their bike and they were like, what is this? And they were transfixed by these dancers walking in circles. But because there was live music and they were trying to, you know, establish the band and the strings and vocals. And the show also contains a massive video installation on LED screen by United Visual Artists from London. And so that takes its time to to build and, and, you know, show what it's going to be. So, yeah. So I think that experience was a really special one to show that, you know, everybody can have an appreciation for it. The three-year-olds who were there were just as awestruck by it as the 90-year-old man who sat in front of me so there there doesn't need to be those kind of scary boundaries or, or yeah. uh, borders with uh, with contemporary dance but it's really about creating you know lenses and and sort of ways for the audience to approach the work that is not singular
1: interesting on the agent side of things mm-hmm. uh, working on an on an international level or mm-hmm. looking to move your artist maybe from you know solely in Canada Onto that international level, like, what does that mean for you? Like, how do you go about doing that? First of all,
5: it's very complicated on a lot of levels. <sighs> I'm sure, it's complicated practically, but it's also just complicated on a personal level, dealing with climate change and trying to justify that my job involves travel and that that's going to involve travel for a lot of other people in order for this thing to happen. Mm. So, trying to reconcile those things is is not obvious. But cultural exchange is kind of the only way that we're going to grow. And for me, the work that that we're making it really it really speaks to time and place it's really um yeah a cultural sort of marker of time and i feel like these things are important to share and they're important to share internationally to 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 really um create a bigger dialogue about where we're at as a planet quite frankly Mm -hmm. and and where we want to go so that can only happen through those exchanges and those dialogues and inevitably uh it's we we lived through covid and we created a lot of digital work, and that was great and very rewarding, but it's not going to replace the live thing for yeah. me and certainly for some of the productions that I'm working on. So some things can translate very well onto the digital, onto the screen, but other things really need to be in the room. You need to be in the room with it to understand yeah. what is being proposed yeah. uh, conveyed. Yeah. so And
1: even those things that do translate well onto the screen, it's never the same experience. No. I think during the lockdown portion of the pandemic, I mean, a a very clear say like winner of that was, you know, Hamilton um, being shot by Disney has its benefits um, and it's very good, but very different experience than being in the theater when that's being performed.
5: For sure. I mean, and also, you know, whole new sort of forms like NFTs, which are now tanking. So we tried, yep. but we're, we're coming back. Yeah. So. People
1: want that, mm-hmm. that physical um, experience. They want for sure. it. I would
5: say they need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely.
5: Um, but on a more practical level, you know, what we do, I'm sure this is... T- um, knew what I'm saying, but it's all relationship built. So the people that I'm proposing work to are often people that I've known for decades and were engaged in a longer conversation. And this just happens to be the project we're talking about right now. And there's gonna be another one. And we're gonna talk about other things Mm. alongside the work or a specific project. So, yeah. so it's really based on that. And once you build a base of those people, it's a web and it just keeps growing, hopefully. yeah. <laughs> so that's, and these people move around and that helps create other, you know, opportunities. So it's really, it's a slow burn for sure. Uh, not uh, something that can happen overnight. But I think that's what makes it really real. Yeah.
1: And it's got to be super rewarding when those things oh, align yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Out of curiosity, yeah. do you have a marker internally that's like, if I start a conversation or a relationship with this person, we're just talk about the work a bit. Do you know like, that likely this is going to take X amount of years, X amount of time, or is it just completely varied?
5: I mean, I think we used to have a sense of... Uh, In Australia, the uh, artistic directors change every three years. So Hmm. if this isn't happening within three years, it's probably not going to happen because that person's going to move on. And then you're starting the conversation all over again. uh, Or the conversation's moved elsewhere. And then you have to build a whole new touring kind of support system where that person has gone to support the work in the in the tour but uh i think you know covid's really shifted things so who knows what time is even anymore <laughs> um <laughs> i can certainly set some goals for myself mm-hmm. and You know, I can have very practical conversations. If somebody seems excited about something, it's like, you know, so is this for your 24 festival? And they can be like, no, forget about it. Like, that's been programmed already. I'm still dealing with COVID backlogs. So, no, it's going to go beyond and then you can start kind of piecing puzzles around so you're not just kind of dealing with these one-offs everywhere hopefully you're mm-hmm. you're engaging a few people to to get to a few places within a territory but obviously with a scale of work that I'm generally working at uh, that that's pretty difficult you know i've sat on some touring juries and looking at you know what a a band can kind of put together and say look at this 14 city tour that we're doing it's it's incredible and then we have this contemporary dance company that's trying to get you excited about two cities and I'm trying to say that's incredible look at they got two yeah. cities it's, you know it's really hard
1: that's interesting
5: but i think it's really it's again based on practicality you know so many uh, there's not so many you know strictly dance seasons or festivals and so people are programming one or two dance shows also because of the budget and capacity and those mm-hmm. things whereas Bands can get booked 365 days a year. There's no restrictions that, that way.
1: Yeah. And a lot of times it takes a lot less space a lot space, mean, and yeah. they can, they
5: can move at different scales in a Bands. way that, that, yeah. you know, dance generally can.
1: One of the things that we, we like to do on the podcast is sort of take people back in time, pop in a time machine and go back to just starting to work with that agent out of theater school. If you had time to talk to yourself what advice would you give yourself at that point in time?
5: I mean, I, th- I think I did a, a good job of um, getting out to see as much as I could. Uh, you know, I was I was out pretty much every night seeing some piece of theater or dance or music. When I was out at festivals, I was I was hustling. So I think that I took good care that way. But I would say, like, have more confidence in yourself. And to run with projects on your own is, is not a bad thing. There aren't enough people doing this job as working as an agent producer Mm. and it's it's hard because it really does take a mentorship experience to really understand how the field works there isn't I haven't found any way a a school that you can go to (laughs) that can teach you all of this and that you leave with your you know roster of artists and your contacts ready to go so um so it takes a long time to build that and once you've built it generally you've created relationships like this is my experience anyway you created relationships with artists that already have an agent so (laughs) You can't really run away with them like that's not done. So I've, you know, started dreaming up an idea that, you know, a longer term mentorship is something that would be great that funders consider that you would, you know, fund a mentorship for three or four years that gives a a young producer and agent an opportunity to go to some of these also industry conferences or here at the Edinburgh Festival, not just once but a couple of times so that it's not brand spanking new every time and you're daunted and you can actually have a chance, but could give them the opportunity to also meet some artists and develop their own roster within that time that they mm. could then branch away with at the end of that mentorship grant and run with and, and see if there's something that lands. So it feels like that could be something like the mentorship that I grant that I had was six months, so it gave me a wonderful opportunity, but if that agent hadn't seen potential in me and taken over... <laughs> Where the grant left off, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. So this idea that you're actually able to take some time to build re- your own relationships with artists and, and develop your own tastes and what you want to pursue and then have the freedom to do that and not not be like, well, I can't take that artist because
1: yeah.
5: uh, they already have representation.
1: Yeah. Sort of a, a similar question. What advice would you give somebody who is just starting out in, in, in the industry and maybe they, they want to get onto the agent producing side? What advice would you give them?
5: I mean, it's not easy. So already starting knowing that is like you have to be really passionate, really driven and understand that it's going to be a stressful kind of world that you're about to yeah. move into. Um, but taking risks is a part of this industry. And the scariest things that I've done have been the most rewarding <laughs> Do you have any
1: examples of that? I
5: was just working in Sicily, I think I told you. (laughs) two weeks ago, <laughs> produced a show in Sicily. That was pretty difficult. Yeah. Dana, who hadn't performed in, in three and a half years and together with the uh, musician, Marie Davidson, who hadn't performed in almost four years. So the two of them coming together and actually supporting each other to get back on stage was phenomenal yeah. and really heartwarming. And now we have something, yeah, a new piece that we can kind of explore and see what we want to do with. So.
1: Hypothetically speaking, you're at a festival like this as an agent and say you're at a point where. You You are ready to bring on a new artist. What does that look like at a festival like this? So like, say you go see a piece of work and you're like, I love this. What do you do from there?
5: Well, meet the people who put it on and generally go for a coffee or a beer and see if if there's something there between the two of us. I mean, I generally say I I wouldn't work with somebody that I wouldn't sit down and have a meal with, um, Mm -hmm. that we need to have that kind of relationship to be able to get through it all together because it's it's not a transactional relationship that we're going to have moving Mm -hmm. forward. We're going to be going through some stuff and we need to be on the same page and we need to make sure we're speaking the same language to be able to Mm kind of get through it all. Obviously, like working with Dana now for over 20 years, we have a shorthand on a lot of things that makes a big difference and that, that just, that takes time. Yeah. So you'd have that first kind of conversation and see if there's a base to work from and then move into the more practical things. Yeah. For me, it's really important to get a sense of the artist's expectations so that we're not uh, way off in terms mm-hmm. of, oh, well, we want to go on a six month 40 uh, city tour and it's actually going to happen. So <laughs> <laughs> let's just recalibrate. So I think that that kind of baseline is really important to establish from the beginning so that you haven't been working together for several years.
1: I love that because I think not just in this industry, but I think in just life in general, we tend to overcomplicate things or Mm -hmm. like build these things up in our minds Mm -hmm. when the reality is, is it's that simple. There's a lot to it in that, but like It's as simple as that first step of let's go have coffee, let's have a drink and just see where this goes.
5: Yeah. Have a chat. I mean, I also just love hearing, uh, yes, expectations, but also dreams, you know, where, where do they see the show? Where would be a dream for them to present the show? I like having goals, you know, I like having a challenge like that. So there are, there are practical parts of the conversation, but there's also like, it's your dream to take this show to Spain. Let's figure it out. You know, why not?
1: Yeah. I love that. I'm always curious. I'm in our industry. Um, so what are you doing to sort of refill your cup, to take care of yourself? Like what are those things that you do for you?
5: Mm -hmm. It's an everyday struggle. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Uh, we have a beautiful garden at home, so when Montreal allows <laughs> allows it, that's a that's a big part of my mm-hmm. kind of uh, my day. is it, it fulfills me a lot to see the tomatoes grow and the chilies, yeah. and um, to tend that. You know, with the people that I live with, it's really a special thing, and that's incredible. Yes. <laughs> that love is so real, <laughs> and that joy uh, is infectious. I also think going for walks, I do a lot of thinking when I walk, Mm -hmm. Um, I like going for meetings and going for a walk, you know, that is a way of sort of problem solving and reducing stress for sure. Like problems that I had when I thought, you know, when I left for the walk aren't as heightened as when I get back, whether I've solved them or not, but it definitely, it's an easy thing to let slide because the email box is being replenished. (laughs) So it's a hard thing to, to put the computer or phone away and, uh, and give yourself that space so when I'm at home and I'm in a groove of that if I can do it it's usually first thing in the morning or uh, at the end of the day Um, dogs are involved so that also they don't give you a choice Um, (laughs) that uh, that makes it easier yeah but certainly all of that completely falls off the table when you're at a festival like this where yes you're walking a lot but generally it's high stress run to a meeting that you're already five minutes late for
1: trying to make it to something. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we bring this to a close? I
5: think just hammering home that this is a really difficult industry, but it's, it's also incredibly rewarding and, uh, and really important. You know, a lot of my, my extended family don't necessarily get exactly what it is that I do, but they know that I've, commit my life to it so so they're very respectful of it and and excited for me for sure
1: i know that feeling (laughs) (laughs) Um, excellent well sarah thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me today
5: thanks for the invitation
4: Kevin, I loved when, when you guys were having that part of the conversation, when you're like, how did we think we could do this so early on? And it's like Sarah said, you know, we're put in the situation of sink or swim. And I think it's like when we're young and we're ambitious and we have all this energy and all of these like new thoughts, and we don't have all that experience to bog us down like, oh, this is how it's done. It reminds me of hearing uh, Paul McCartney in an interview talk about how he's very glad he wasn't classically trained because he did things quote unquote wrong, but look where it led it to, you know, because he did he mashed up different things and just did what he could do at the time. He found interesting ways to create something new from it and, and became one of the biggest, if not the biggest, you know, uh, of all time. So, you, you know, I just, I, I love that thinking about that, that early on, yes, we need to have structure and, and guidance and blah, blah, blah. But there's also that freedom of, uh, you know, you just have this energy and this, this like go, go, go spirit that can bring you anywhere.
2: Kevin, I really appreciated um, your really kind of in-depth conversation about presenting dance in the dance world. And Sarah's comment about how people struggle with contemporary dance in particular because there isn't language associated with it, right? It's not a linguistic art form. It's all physical and and visual and audio. Um, Really struck me because as a, a dance artist myself and trying to present dance to audiences, I... And I don't think there's one right answer, but I go kind of back and forth in terms of how best to do table setting for audiences when you're trying to present dance or get them to engage with a lesser known contemporary dance art form. So people know tap, people know ballet, but contemporary dance can be intimidating. So it made me think a lot about the own struggle that I have internally with myself as a, as a presenter in terms of like how much table setting do we do? How much conversation around it? What do you want people to walk away from an experience with? Because I want people, especially those that are taking a risk and coming to see dance, maybe that they're not familiar with, I want them to have the best experience possible and walk away not feeling like Sarah's dad did, ostracized, or like they just saw something and went, what the heck just happened? Like, I don't understand that. So how do we do Education and the work ahead of time, or the work in the moment when we have audiences right there in space with us to give them the information they need to be comfortable in that experience Um, and it is dance really is about feeling and it's about storytelling Um, so how do you get people to kind of like understand those concepts the other thing I think a lot about is shows like so you think you can dance and dancing with the stars we have a lot of language now around dance that's out in pop culture and out in the general public and these shows go on tours and do those sorts of things but that sets a different expectation of what dance is. It's short form, it's poppy, it's set to rock music, things like that. Whereas like when you're seeing a long form contemporary dance or the things that Sarah was talking about, that's a very different experience. So how do we as presenters kind of think about that and balance those experiences and the expectations the audiences have? Um, again, I don't think there's a right answer. Uh, and I think there's lots of different avenues and entrances into the dance world. Um, but I just... It was making me think about a lot of these things I've thought about before and reevaluate some of my past experiences and past thoughts on this subject.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to sort of convey with Sarah is that how do you get people to take that risk on that? Because up until you know recently, I mean, I don't I don't want to say being forced to, but like being forced to attend some of the events that that, that we book and do. I would not be a contemporary dance person, but after a few experiences where I'm like, I don't know technically what I just watched or maybe what the artist was trying to convey there, but I know like what I felt like, I know the feelings and the emotions it made me feel. And I don't know how to explain that to somebody, but I will also understand that like much like Sarah's dad, my father would be the same way. Um, and so I always just tell him like, I don't think this one's for you. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) But I do think whenever we're considering, you know, is this for you or, you know, what is the difference between the more commercial dance that's touring and um, this kind of contemporary um, artful dance is like the conversation about doing it outdoors, where it's somewhere that people are just going to stumble upon it and there's sort of that extra level of like confusion and like, why is this here and what is going on and and that level to it. But at the same time, it does kind of ground it and it does make it a little bit more personal if it's in your town or your your city square or wherever it is. And I I love, you know, her talking about the outdoor dance performances that they were doing and how it does bring in a lot of people and maybe a lot of new people to that art form.
3: Yeah, it's a good access point. You're right. So the, one of the things that really stood out for me in this interview was, and it was kind of glanced over, and it's something that I didn't know, is that the directors of these festivals and other things all change out every three
1: years in Australia. So that is actually pretty common with a lot of like larger festivals. Um, like it's mostly like the artistic directors who help book those things. Like They're on a two to three year contract, which is something I, I recently learned basically around the same time that I met Sarah.
2: And I wonder what that does, though, for continuity and relationship building. Like she was saying, it makes it difficult to build those long term relationships and book things out further in advance and then do that advanced planning when you have so much turnover. So I'd be curious in turn just as to why that is and how that works.
1: I think I think part of it is more from the festival aspect of things when you're trying to bring in something new, like you get some excitement around a new artistic director. Um, and, you know, like Sarah was mentioning in her interview, the the flip side of that is, you know, maybe something doesn't work out, you know, in the three years they're at uh, a certain festival, but it might work out in, in, place that that they're going so i think there's there's definitely some benefits to that both on you know from the business aspect of like the festival side of things but also i think for the agents as well
4: yeah it's like a a perpetual excitement of of newness and change constantly happening and it also gives experience so A lot of these artistic directors, too, they don't want to be bogged down, like have their lifelong, this is where I'm going to settle kind of job when they're taking those. They they like that. Okay, I'm going to be here for this period of time and do some amazing things or get to try some amazing things and then learn from that experience and then move on to the next fun adventure.
0: So, Kevin, the other big conversation that I thought this interview brought up that I'm having a hard time grappling with with myself continually is the idea around sustainable touring and green touring and you know the toll that this work has on the environment and the ways that we can work differently and work more together to like lessen that load and you know, I think the more opportunities people like Sarah and and us on this podcast have to talk about different ways that we're doing that and that concern to bring that like to a heightened level of attention is really wonderful. And I just wanted to thank Sarah for that.
3: Speaking of touring, I, I thought the contrast that was brought up between touring for dance specifically versus for music acts and bands and the freedom that that there is for a commercial music act with their touring schedule versus the thoughtfulness that it takes to place and placemaking for contemporary dance and that, you know, a 50-city tour for a music act is a great tour, whereas a two-city tour for contemporary dance is a great tour. And just the, the contrast in, in those two different models and understandings of what the touring industry looks like from very, very different perspectives. It was a really interesting thought exercise.
1: Yeah. I think it also brings to mind the, like the economics of both those scenarios. Um, Because if you, you know, you know, having, having a large dance group, obviously like has its costs, but if you can only go to certain venues, like that also does increase that cost because artists need to make a living as well as, you know, eat. So, um, that's, you know, that, that was something that really, I, I thought about after this interview as well.
2: I've heard from other agents that work with dance that companies are scaling back their touring companies. So instead of putting out work that requires 12 to 15 dancers, they are putting together work that only requires six to eight dancers, for instance, so that they don't have to put as many people out on the road. So that saves resources and time and transportation costs and things like that. So while I'm going to miss, I think the grandeur that comes with large companies like that, that is one way that we can... From kind of both sides of it, think about the routing side of it, thinking about how to make the our venues more sustainable, things like that. But then also the artists taking that into consideration and like scaling their work appropriately so they can put it on tour and they can keep working in more sustainable ways.
4: My notes this episode tended to be more quotes, like writing down quotes that I liked. And two of them um, that that I really just want to bring forward are, are when you were talking about, Kevin, how the audiences want a physical experience And Sarah's like, no, they need it. (laughs) I think they need it. Mm. And I felt that one. And then, of course, the one that resonated the most with me was the scary. Sarah says the scariest things are often the most rewarding. And I just want to add, they're also usually the most meaningful, too, when you get through them. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks,
1: friends, for having this conversation with me. And thank you to Sarah Rogers for carving time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk. I found it very enlightening. And for all of you, we'll see you next week here on There's No Business Like.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to "There's No Business Like." Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vano. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at NoBusinessLike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it, don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I mess every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends.
1: Welcome back, everyone. To there's no business. Nope. I don't like when I do that. Never again. Try that again. (laughs) Thank you. That helps. (laughs) You can align that with the video now, Brian. Uh, All right. Welcome back, everyone. Damn it. How do I start this normally?
4: What's wrong with welcome back, everyone?
1: Well, it's very offensive, Kevin. I can't. Yes. It natural. Well, because it. Okay. So it naturally flows into welcome back, everyone. To there's no business like. But, like, I always think it's weird when I say there's no business like because Danielle just said no business like in the intro. Like, there's a whole intro that happens. And so, my brain. Like,
0: boots and cats and boots Boots and cats. We're back. We're back.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, yes. Uh...
2: Sorry. I have the giggles today, I think. So,
1: (laughs) that's okay. That's not a bad thing. I think I'm ready this time. And I'm going to start with welcome back. (laughs) After all that.
2: Kevin, that is a great question. Um, I don't know that this...
4: Why is it so great, Katie? Did, did you help him with that? <laughs> Maybe I'm doing Kevin's work Subtle. for him. <laughs> yes, I am. Good job, me. By the way, Kevin, I ain't your welcome back girl or whatever that is. You know?
2: Holla back yeah, girl?
4: Yeah. No, no, welcome back yeah, but girl. but it's a welcome back for him.
3: B-A-N-A-N-A-S.
0: <laughs> B U S I N S I. I can't do it. Nope. <laughs> Mississippi. <laughs> I was trying to spell like
4: Mississippi. B I S S I S. There's no
0: business like Mississippi.
5: I P P I.
4: Oh, it's oh, <gosh>. perfect. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Katie.
3: If you need to pat yourself on the back again to get started, feel free.
2: Okay, hey, Kevin, that's a great question. Um, I am thinking of a risk I took.
1: She pat herself on the back again. And then started laughing. All right,
2: Kevin, that's. I'm going to say it again because it's just the entrance into it. Um, and it's, I'm not patting myself on the back. I not you? A, no. <laughs> it was not my intent at all. That's like when you make a pun when you really don't intend to make a pun. It was that situation.
3: And then you say no pun intended, but nobody believes you. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly like that.
0: Because you're just punny.
1: Good job, Katie.
0: Thanks. Appreciate that. What was the other question?
1: Uh, the other question was, how do you feel about the musical Annie oh that would have been so good i love it i mean we still we that's still a great have question brian talk about it i hate orphan musicals <laughs> brian
4: <laughs> orphan i musicals, thought that was a i thought you were just gonna say just you just be like i just hate oliver orphans. you have newsies <laughs> let's see oliver newsies uh annie just
2: do they eat orphans in sweeney todd or was that just the no that was there is
3: an orphan in sweeney todd yes
2: i know but then they like
3: they, they don't eat him
0: I don't love it whenever she sings Let's straighten their curls Because you, why are you going to straighten A whole group of girls curls If they're going to get curly again Like that's not a part Like she's not taking care of them at all Like straightening their hair is not going to help The situation
4: <laughs> This Danielle moment was brought to you <laughs>